0: All right, um, Ashley, if you would, would you put up that 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verses 23-25 through 25, up on the screen? Um, Jacob read this a bit earlier. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, Paul is writing this letter to a church called Corinth. That's why it's called 1 Corinthians. It's because it's chronologically the first letter that we know of that he wrote to the church called Corinth. We think there's probably evidence for between four and seven letters written to them. That's not—anyway, whatever. Uh, so this is in the opening of that letter. Um, so when we preach that Christ was crucified— He's talking to people who consider themselves Christians, okay? These are the Corinthian Christians. He started this church, raised it up. The, the, the Jews are, who were the religious uh, leaders, they were the ones that, um, this is how you should understand them because the, any time the Jews show up, sometimes uh, cultish groups and power-hungry despots um, begin to get anti-Semitic. Um, God adores the Jews, and you've got to be really careful because you're going to have to answer for how you treat them uh, before him. Uh, but, but he gave to the Jews uh, what, what, the, what the scriptures would call the oracles of God. He, he, he entered into their life. He, he did miracles for them, He taught them, and it was through them that Christ came into the world, and, and, and the blessings through the children of Abraham, who were the Jews, were intended for the whole world. and, and there they were offended. At this time, they were offended that Christ was crucified. We'll talk a little bit about why. And the Gentiles, who would be anybody who's not Jewish. So you've got everybody. Everybody's either in this one boat or the other. Everybody either is offended or they think everything's nonsense. Specifically, they think everything about Christ crucified is nonsense. Except those called by God to salvation, both the Jews and the Gentiles. So anybody in all the world who's called by God to salvation, to them Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God this foolish plan, Christ crucified, the Savior King killed, this foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. We can just leave that up maybe throughout the night. That would be great, actually. Even uh, throughout other slides, we can come back to it. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Um, this semester we've been talking about wisdom, and when the Apostle Paul, who wrote uh, 13 of the New Testament letters, including this one, when he talks about wisdom, you know what he talks about all over and over and over again? This is what he talks about. Christ crucified. This is what the wisdom of God looks like. It looks like God's Son on a cross. That's what wisdom looks like. All right, now Christ, I already mentioned this a little bit. Christ means, if you don't know, it means Savior King. That's what it means. It has this connotation of both. A king, but one who will save us. And crucified, literally, it's, it's like the same root as the word cross. It means to be, or, or, or X, uh, it means to be put on a cross to die. So Christ crucified means your Savior, King, put on a cross to die. Jesus on the cross. The death of God's own Son. We could translate it this way. The cross-shaped life and death of our King. That's what wisdom looks like. It's power too, he says. That's for a different sermon. Okay, I remember, I I remember probably my sophomore year, I don't know if it was freshman or sophomore year of college, but I remember when a Christian evangelist from some college ministry on my college campus, uh, it was a student, and she came up to me, and we were talking about Jesus-y things, um, and, and she told me that Christ crucified makes sense of everything, Jason. You know what I thought? I thought, you're an idiot. You're an idiot. Christ crucified does not make sense of everything, you believe that a dude was God, which is crazy, and then you think we killed him, which is even crazier. That, is, that was how much sense Christ crucified meant to me when she said, Christ crucified makes sense of everything, Jason. I was like, no, it doesn't. That's weird. You know what made more sense to me? Th- this picture. Would you put up that pic- picture I gave you? This made way more sense to me than what she said. This is uh, John Jacobs and the power team. Uh, has anybody ever heard of the power team? I can't wait to tell my Generation X friends, there's one of you. Okay, great. Let me tell you about the power team. Let's leave this up for a second, okay? So they're all holding swords and Bibles, by the way. Oh, this guy in the middle is holding a Bible. Um, This is the 1980s in all its Christian glory, okay? Uh, In the 1980s, y'all, we could do anything. We could do anything. I mean, look, we could actually do more now, but that we actually believed we could do anything at that time. Um, so, all growing up, I remember watching like every single movie um, with like kids taking off through the woods and like saving the planet. Like that's all we did. Like every single like kids like had little, like these bikes, and we would like take off somewhere, and we always believed that we were going to save the whole universe somehow. Um, people would like break dance in the middle of department stores. That was like a thing. Uh, we believed that hoverboards would be commonplace by the nineties. Dead, we were so, do you guys even know what hoverboards are? Back to the Future? Has anybody seen Back to the Future? It's a fantastic trilogy from the 1980s. You should really see it. Um, but there's like the, the floating skateboards. We thought those would be commonplace. Everybody on college campuses by 1993 or 4 would have floating skateboards. That was a guarantee. In the 1980s, I don't know who it was, but somebody took me to to see this, this group called the Power Team. Um, and it was like it was around the same time I went and saw what then was WWF, which is, I think, WWE or something. It was like a precursor to real fighting uh, or something. Um, anyway, I went to see, like, a cage match between, like, Hulk Hogan and Andre the— But no, these names probably don't matter to you. doesn't matter. Anyway, I was a kid. I was, like, third grade, fourth grade. Somebody took me to see the power team. And, and basically these guys, these huge jacked dudes would get up on stage, and they would, like, rip license plates in half with their teeth. They would break bricks with their head. They would uh, tear telephone books in half with their hands. They would do these crazy things, and it was rad. It was like really cool. Um, and they they would do something which was really tough, and then they would say something like, "Yeah, but God is tougher." And they would do something really crazy and they'd be like God's love for you is even crazier and also I'm dead serious and also don't do drugs kids Uh, that's like seriously that was the that was the power team Uh, That was really what they were that they would ask this touring thing I think at one point they'd made like 11 million dollars in one year doing this I don't know until the guy ended up like cheating on his wife and getting into drugs and stuff which is sort of ironic Uh, anyway um, the power team was super weird Um, it had its own problems I wasn't completely sold on the power team like even in third and fourth grade super super cool, seeing really strong guys do crazy things. That was like Guinness Book of World Records stuff. Like, I think they actually technically own some Guinness books of whatever. I don't even know what the plural of all that is. Um, They own some records. Uh, Anyway, I wasn't totally sold, but that actually, those guys on stage made more sense to me than a girl who said, Christ crucified, like that's the sales pitch. God's son on a cross, right? Don't you want to do that? That's, that's what Christianity is all about, because, and here's why, right? You guys know why, probably, because strong and rich and powerful and influential, that actually sounds a little more appealing to me uh, than, uh, than your God dying. Okay, Um, I'm talking to a crowd that really believes all that, so this is a tough crowd for that, okay? Um, Jesus told, uh, listen, listen, Jesus told his disciples things like this, y'all. He said, the last shall be first. Jesus says things like this, the last, the last shall be first, and friends, This is foolishness to the outside world. Do you remember uh, that that pearl of wisdom from the Academy Award-winning film *Talladega Nights*? Am I getting closer? Am I getting closer? Okay, *Talladega Nights*. Anyone? Okay, Uh, what's the greatest pearl of wisdom from *Talladega Nights*? Anybody know? If you ain't first, you're last, right? Okay, Uh, yes, no hoverboards, but definitely Talladega. Okay, Uh, listen, all throughout that film, that line's like being said. In interviews, Ricky Bobby is doing these interviews all the time. He's saying it throughout the whole film. Here's what's crazy. Here's what's crazy. I remember when he first said it and watching it in the theater, I died laughing, and I was like, totally. Like, I'm super competitive, and I was like, if you ain't first, you're last. And I totally totally bought into that and I'm laughing the whole time and then near the end of the movie there's this moment and Ricky Bobby says to his dad don't you remember that time you told me if you ain't first you're last and his dad says son I was high that day that doesn't make any sense at all there's second third fourth hell you can even be fifth <laughs> and Ricky and Ricky Bobby says what I've followed that my entire life <laughs> you guys know that scene or if not whatever What's so crazy to me about that film is when he said, if you ain't first, you're last, I was in. Totally, that made all the sense. His dad says that thing, and I'm like, yeah, we're dummies. Like, we are to- of course there's second and third and fourth and fifth. Of course there is. Why so quickly that I just nod my head at the first thing? We Christians walk around saying things like, the first shall be last. Then Ricky Bobby's dad comes up and says, that doesn't make any sense at all. The first are first, and the last are last. This, that, that's kind of what happened to me with this girl, and I think I broke her heart uh, because she, uh, when she told me that Jesus just makes sense of everything, I said, "No, He doesn't. He kind of makes a mess out of everything. He makes a mess." If that's true, what does that say about greatness? What does that say about power? What does that say about success? What does that say about the ways in which I want to make my mark on the world? What does that say about who I want to marry and where I want to live and how many kids I'd like to have and what order I want to have them and what names I want to give them? If the high king of the universe gave his life up for me, what am I doing taking my own life for myself? I didn't say all of that to her. I just said, no, it doesn't make sense. That sounds like crazy talk. Do you see what Paul said about preaching? Would you go back to that uh, passage, Ashley, from 1 Corinthians? Do you see what Paul said about preaching about Christ crucified? That the religious leaders were offended, that the people who worked really hard to be better than everyone else were offended. Christ crucified is offensive to them. And you can identify with this. In some way, shape, or form, you can identify with this. Haven't you ever worked really hard for something? Okay, maybe some of you can't identify with this, but some of you really can. Most of you can, I think. Uh, And you saw someone else get the same thing that you worked hard for, with little to no effort. A spot on a sports team, a date, a grade, a certain kind of attention. And when that happens, isn't it easy for us to get pretty offended? I worked so hard for this. How is that fair? Like, our sense of injustice is sort of triggered An offense happens, and for the religious leaders, the Savior King laying down his life for others is offensive because they were constantly trying to lift themselves up over others. One of the repeated sort of motifs about um, sort of the images called to mind of the Pharisees, some of these religious elite of the day, was that they would take the high places in the city to be seen. And here Jesus is on this descending journey. For those of you who feel like insiders, who see yourselves as the older brother or sister, the stronger one, the more mature one in your faith, because you don't do this, because you do this, because you think this way, because you've been to this thing, whatever, there's a great temptation for you to be offended by the gospel, to be offended that those who are younger, weaker, more mature, are led in and given full rights. You remember the great story our Lord told in Luke 15. It is the most preached parable in the history of the church—the parable of two brothers. The older brother fuming in anger outside because the younger brother was let in. Christ crucified is offensive to those of us who work so hard to gain the favor of God, which He gives so freely. And for others of us, our great temptation is to see the gospel as foolish—the first or first, not the last. If I want to save my life, I shouldn't have to give it up. The poor are not actually blessed, and there is no way that the meek don't inherit anything. They're not going to inherit the earth. Go read a business book where you find any kind of championing of meekness. The closest it comes, I read actually a lot of leadership books and business books. I'm sure it shows. Um, uh, (laughs) Jeez, I should pick up another hobby. but wh- there's a really common refrain from leaders, and or for leaders now. It's, it's really commonplace that leaders should be like looking out for those people under them, um, affirming them and encouraging them and giving them credit for things that is really theirs. But, but the whole auspice of the book is in order that you might become great. It's like veiled humility, you know what I mean, like ish, but there, there, I haven't found any, anything yet, any, any leadership book, wisdom book, I'm trying to think even church stuff, there's a lot of stuff about like servant leadership the, from the church that, that may speak to some of this, but in, in sort of the, in the, the, the wisdom of the world, the business management, leadership sections at bookstores and those kinds of things, the wisdom there is across the board says nothing about anybody meek. not going to get anything a book that was recommended to me last week the number one thing was you got to start your own business don't work for anybody else do your own thing that's the only way anybody ever gets rich i mean this is common wisdom and some of you know this some of you have been drinking this water your whole lives some of you who are like been you've been ever since you've been born you want to be a social worker that may sound crazy to you but the wisdom of the world is not about meekness or, or poverty and yet jesus says the poor are blessed and the meek are blessed And that sounds like foolishness to us. All that talk is so crazy. We can almost believe something like the power team. I don't know, what's the big uh, motivational speaker guy? Tony something? Yeah, Tony Robbins. Like We can believe Tony Robbins or Oprah. Like, we can, we can maybe buy into something like that. Or if we can find somebody that is a devout, that, that's a, that's a uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, on their Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, they, like, have, like, fish symbols, and they say they're Christians, but they speak like Oprah. Now, that sounds appealing to us so often if they're motivational, if they have really sexy rhetoric, that makes me feel safe and like I'm not being duped, but now I'm actually in control again of, of something. Because all of those kinds of things appeal to the wisdom of the world. We live in strength and positivity and ego. It's so easy to start cults and, and televangelist ministries and these guys, because people like to have, the Bible says this phrase that, that sounds so ar- archaic in a way, and yet I think the wording is so perfect for the way. They like to have their ears tickled. That's the, way the new, that's the way Paul words it. He says people in these latter days like to have their ears tickled. And he actually encourages his church leaders in other sections of the New Testament. He encourages them to be careful for the people that are chasing after that and are abusing positions of authority and power by just tickling people's ears because we chase after things we want to hear. How many of us have Instagram account? I don't even know how you do this on Instagram. Something like a Facebook account where there's a phrase called it's just an echo chamber. That's the phrase for it. Where everything that I see is exactly the kinds of things I just want to hear. I don't see or hear anything anymore that I don't want to hear. It turns out everybody I know is fighting for the same political stuff and social stuff I am. Where are all these other people? Because I'm surrounding myself with people who tickle my ears. That's the way it talks. And for those of us who who may not be the religious elite, but the Gentiles, the ones that are a little bit more outside, who haven't yet tasted some of the depth of some things, potentially the the wisdom of Christ crucified. Now, when you talk about Christ um, gifting me, Oh my gosh, anytime we talk about spiritual gifts, people come running. But you talk about service, it's the same five people that show up all the time. Because anytime we're talking about something that fits with the cultural grids of the world, power, ego, like I said, positivity, those kinds of things, that's great. But Christ crucified sounds crazy. Why is that appealing? You should say something more positive. All of the world then and all of the world now, Paul says, demands signs and wonders and good arguments. And Paul says, here's what I have to offer. Christ crucified. You want signs and wonders? You want demonstrations? Prove it. Christ crucified. You want a really good argument for what I'm saying? Christ crucified. Listen to the way Tim Keller, this pastor in New York City, listen to the way he describes what Christ crucified sounds like. He says it sounds like this. The way up is down, the way to lead is to serve, the way to get happiness is to seek happiness not for yourself but for others. The way to be truly rich is to give wealth away, and of course, divine wisdom begins with giving yourself completely to Jesus as he has given himself to you and to the world that looks like a kind of suicide. But it is a way of life. It is the way of life. We have a few more weeks in the semester to explore how the wisdom of God comes to bear on, on a couple of particular areas in our life. But this week, is, in Holy Week, I just want us to get a glimpse of God's wisdom in Jesus Christ crucified. Yes, Jesus is risen from the grave. Yes, he is coming again. And the fact that he conquers death and that he will come again in glory is actually why we're not crushed as Christians by his crucifixion. It's actually the reason why Paul keeps talking. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, Paul actually tells us in 1 Corinthians, the same letter later on in chapter 15, he actually says, if Christ didn't raise from the dead, move on. He says it in more stark language than that, but he actually says it's way more stark because he says, if Christ didn't raise from the dead, then we're still dead in our sins, and we of all people are most to be pitied in the world. And he says all of our faith is empty and in vain if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. But, be, but because Christ rose from the dead, Paul's super interested in focusing on his crucifixion, which I find fascinating. When we see that Christ is victorious over death, his friends all, like all these New Testament writers, they implore us to look at him on the cross. So Paul doesn't say, for example, he doesn't say, I long to know nothing among you except Christ resurrected. He doesn't say that. He doesn't come into a room like this and say, you know what I want to see? I want to see where Christ has risen in your life. He he says, I long to know nothing among you except Christ crucified. That's where the wisdom of God is found. Why does he say this? And what does that even freaking mean? And and to to, to try to be really honest, and this feels something like offensive or foolish to me, uh, rather than offer you signs or arguments for this, I want us to share a small expression of it, a small picture, I think, of the, of the cross-shaped life. And hope that some of the wisdom in this kind of gets past your offenses and defenses. And so we, we, Jacob read this earlier, uh, or kind of read it earlier, I guess. Uh, on the night before Jesus' death, um, he was sitting, uh, Jacob, I love you, man. Uh, that, that doesn't account for anything, but I'll wash your feet, okay? Uh, anyway, um, Jesus was, was sitting at the head of this table, and I hope you guys have heard this story a lot, and I don't think we can hear it enough. But Jesus was sitting at the head of this table with his friends, having dinner. A very, very special dinner. And they were his closest friends, and, you, and it, would, it would help to, in, to invite your imagination uh, to picture that. And in the middle of dinner, it seems like actually probably pretty early on, but, but he, he stood up from the head position at the table, and he set aside his clothing, and he wrapped himself in a towel, and he got down on his knees, and he began to wash the feet of his friends. And as he washed their feet one by one, It seems Peter was watching him. He was watching his friend and his Lord wash all these other guys' feet, um, and and he sort of watched him take on this sort of posture of a servant, and he must have been really uncomfortable with this because when Jesus got to him, Peter uh, Peter said, "Uh, Lord, why are you doing this? And Jesus said, you don't understand right now, but one day you will. And Peter said, no, you will never wash my feet. And you know why he said it, because it's weird and undignified. It's, it's offensive and foolish. If, if somebody you looked up to like crazy, in a moment you didn't expect, got down on their knees and started washing your feet, wouldn't you start getting squirmy? That, and Peter's like, this is weird. Stop. Don't, you're not going to wash my feet. These were guys who pretty much literally they just walked around in dust like all day long. Their feet would have been dirty and gnarled and hardened. And Jesus, in a, in a wonderful metaphor for his life, he leaves his rightful place at the head of the table to get dirty and wash his friends. And he says, Peter, if I don't wash you, you don't belong to me. And Peter's still not understanding. This is so Peter. He says, then wash all of me. Because uh, he just doesn't know how to take it. Uh, he doesn't know how to listen. He just jumps in everything. And Jesus actually rebukes him just a little, but then he encourages him a little, and he washes his feet and everybody else's feet. And there's, there's some more to the story, right? But, but listen, in the back of the room, uh, you may have seen it coming in. Uh, and this is, I think, now the third year in a row, so I think that makes a tradition uh, for Holy Week. But um, I don't know who said that, but whatever. Uh, there's four stations in the back. We've set up some chairs with pails of water and some lavender Epsom salt. Um, to help with sterilization and scent, which I don't think they had. Um, and in just a minute, uh, they probably had salt, okay? Um, and, and I, I want to invite you, um, if you want, you don't have to, I want to invite you to take your shoes off, um, socks too, if you have them, and, and, uh, and go back there and let someone wash your feet. And then when you're done, however long that takes, I want you to um, stand, uh, just move to the side a little bit and grab that towel and wait to wash somebody else's feet. And my suspicion is for many of us, if right now you're thinking, huh, okay, I'm going to do that or maybe not, um, even the thought of this is probably a little discomforting. Washing someone else's feet is, is a really humbling thing. I submit to you that having your feet washed is probably even more humbling. Here's why. Not a single one of us in this room, not a single one of us in this room has earned the right to have our feet washed by somebody else in this room. And what's more, not a single one of us in this room has earned the right to even wash somebody else's feet in this room. It's all grace. All of it. This is what the the uh, the crucified Christ life. Uh, another word for it, the cross shaped life. This is the kind of way that that life looks. This is what God's life looks like for us. It's what ours is supposed to look like for others. And it's all by grace. And, we, and when you, if you can stop, and I don't even know if we need to stop and think about it, I think it's largely intuitive, and we start to pay attention to all of the ways in which we have tried to establish ourselves in the world, with our friends and family, enemies, roommates, teachers, social media crowds, likers on things, whatever those are. All of the ways in which we've tried to establish ourselves, something like our Lord getting on his knees and washing our feet makes a mockery of it. Some of you in this room um, are, are, uh, come from families of wealth. Some come from uh, a lot of poverty. Some of you in this room want to stand up with, with children from this last weekend around the nation, having conversations about our Second Amendment and what that means. And some of you um, want to arm teachers. Some of you in this room are very conservative theologically. Some of you are probably very liberal. All different. Some of, I don't know. Some of you probably spend hours picking out clothes to look a certain way and some of you spend hours picking out clothes to look the exact opposite way. Some of you save money. Some of you spend money. Some of you are like really disciplined about one area of your faith and, and, really, and some of you are really disciplined about another area. Your, we're all different. And, then, and, and when we have to have any moment when we're sitting together and those things don't matter because we all have stinky feet, it's weird It just calls to question all of the things. It either usually offends us or makes, it seems kind of foolish compared to the other ways that we live and the other ways that we try to make much of ourselves in this world. But I want to invite you to try and look for some wisdom in it. To try and look at how this speaks a better truth about each one of us, how a cross-shaped posture of humility, of washing and being washed reveals some wisdom. friends as you take time to do some of this together and actually right now as I'm closing it would be probably really good if the worship team and the AV team wanted to go down there in the back if you wanted to and let some of our staff wash your feet so we can get started here in a minute but friends as you take time to do this together and as our worship team leads us in a couple more songs i want to invite you to think about our king jesus i know that that some of us in this room if you're a christian we want him to come in power to make all things right to show us the way to provide mightily for our needs But listen, he comes in humility before he comes in power. He's lifted up on a cross before he's lifted up in glory. He comes on his knees before he comes on a throne. And many of us have missed this. Matter of fact, in the letter to the Corinthians, this is something Paul is chasing a lot as they're running they're running to this place where they are seeing themselves as God's chosen, established, creating hierarchies of who's better than who based on spiritual giftedness while people are starving in the streets. While people are, are, are being abused, people widows are going hungry, orphans are not being cared for. And Paul says the wisdom of God is Christ crucified. You've missed it, friends. Do we want Christ in his glory? Yes, but we need him in his humility now. How many of us in this room, when we picture God, I almost started the whole evening by asking you to do this. It just seems so vague and abstract. I almost want to go, if you could picture God, how do you picture Him? And a great way that Paul invites you to picture Him is Him crucified, and, and here we see an image of for you. Some of us sort of imagine God, uh, I don't know, hiding in the bushes with a big stick, jumping out to like Hit us with it when we do something wrong, or a, or a mean judge sitting behind a, a bench of some kind, or an angry dad. Paul would call our attention over and over and over again to this to our Lord on the cross, who in his last breaths was saying things like this: "God have mercy on them. They don't they don't know what they're doing." Or in his last breaths, he's looking at his mom and, his, and one of his best friends, potentially his best friend, and, and he's trying to take care of their relationship together before he goes in, in, into a, a new kind of relational experience with them. Or this night while he's sitting at the table, the night of his betrayal, he actually washed his betrayer's feet. I know some of us would never even talk to somebody who would betray us for our, I mean, for our lives, y'all. Like Some of us feel betrayed because somebody doesn't text us back. This isn't that kind of a, this is like, this is, Jesus got sold for money. He actually got sold for a slave's salary, 30 pieces of silver, and his life would be taken because of it. And he knew it right before he washed his feet. If you listen to the reading earlier, right before it, Jesus even said in the middle of it, one of you is a betrayer. And I wonder if, I wonder if Jesus and Judas made eye contact during that moment. I don't know. I wonder when Jesus is washing his feet what Judas felt like. I wonder if he felt even dirtier getting his feet. I don't know. But this is the way Jesus lives toward his enemies. Do you, uh, maybe this is the invitation for you. I want you to imagine God in his posture of, of him being on his knees washing your feet tonight as somebody else washes your feet. And he calls his people to be like him in the world so it's totally appropriate for you to see one of his people washing your feet too. And my suspicion to you is that that sounds potentially warm and fuzzy in a certain kind of way, but actually I think it's remarkably foolish or offensive to all of the ways in which we try to make much of our lives. That this is the way the God of all creation comes to us, is in a meal, and on his knees, and on a cross. And then he says to us, love others like I love you. In meals like this, break your body for others, share your food with others, get on your knees for others, give up your life for others. This is the way I want you to live. He's lifted up on a cross before he's lifted up in glory. This is how he comes to you, friends. And it's actually how he invites you to come to others in your life. Your family this weekend, your roommates, your friends, even your enemies. So please feel free at the spirits leading over the next 10 minutes or so to head to the back and have your feet washed by somebody else. Uh, When you're done, um, would you just wait and wash somebody else's feet who's coming up behind you? You don't have to do this. If you don't, if you're offended or if it seems foolish, I I encourage you to get curious about that and see where that leads you. And there's also a a team of people to pray with you in the back. All right? Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, I don't know, Lord, how each of us in this room um, resists the way in which you come into our lives. In humility, in vulnerability, in quietness, in weakness, I don't know. But I pray that you'd give us the courage um, to risk that. I pray that you'd help our unbelief for those of us that, potentially all of us who struggle to believe. I don't know, Lord, I just have this sense that we We think all of our struggles to believe in you are other things, intellectual debates or your demonstrations of power. My experience, Lord, is that every single time I get into those conversations with folks, we find a sort of other layers of an onion much deeper. At the core, Father, I'm convinced that for so many of us, we just cannot fathom that you love us like you say you do. So would you help us to believe it this Holy Week season But you help us to believe that there was a moment when the the high king of all creation, the one who made everything, the one who made every single person in this room with intention and design got on his knees and washed some people's feet even on the night he was betrayed. And he said to them and through them to all of us, love other people like this. And I pray for those of us in this room that, that for the rest of this week, that people would begin to get a glimpse of Christ crucified through our lives with them. That each of us would take up an invitation to lay down our lives for others. Placing our trust in you. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. to feel thy touch.